I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 262 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. This episode is the third lecture in a series by Dr. Abdel Aziz Al-Bawab on psyche and society, coloniality, degeneracy, and alienation. Dr. Abdel Aziz Abawab is a Palestinian of the diaspora. He completed his medical training at Whale Coneal Medicine, Qatar, where he received the Excellence in Psychiatry Award. He is a psychiatry resident at the University of New Mexico, where he also serves as Chief of Psychotherapy and is a recent recipient of the fourth annual Austin Riggs Award for Excellence in Psychotherapy. He is interested in psychosis, psychoanalysis, and liberatory approaches to clinical practice. You can find a video of this lecture up at YouTube. Just visit Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can support Rendering Unconscious at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge thank you to everyone in our Patreon community. We're so glad to have you there. Your support means the world. Um, I do everything on my own for this podcast. It's a true labor of love. I'm coming up on six years of doing this podcast, and I don't receive any outside funding. All funding comes from the fans and listeners that subscribe to our Patreon. So thank you so much to our Patreon community. I'm so, so happy to have you here with me. So we spoke initially in our first lecture about uh, history, about colonialism, about uh, the on, like the start of slavery and the way that power around the globe was reorganized along certain lines and people were kind of positioned in different ways. They start to relate to each other differently. They start to relate to themselves differently. And they have new ideas about what it means to be, uh, to have a mind, what it means to have a body. Um, in our second lecture, we got more into the way that that context plays into psychiatry itself and how it, how it influences Kraepelin and uh, the, you know, the, what we have there as a DSM, as well as different ways that social attitudes influence and shape diagnoses, right, and, and mental illness. And um, today we're going to talk about psychoanalysis specifically, okay? psychodynamic theory, and in particular, this idea that is actually a very old idea that predates psychoanalysis, um, the idea of uh, being alienated from yourself, okay? so, so alienation. And uh, we're going to kind of track that through different psychoanalytic schools and how, how it was thought about, and then also maybe take a more uh, liberatory lens into how to engage with this uh, with this clinical problem. Okay? So we'll start off with this quote here from from um, a book called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And let me just minimize this over here. Okay. And um, it's a quote about invisibility, okay? I'm invisible simply because people refuse to see me, 
It is as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. Invisibility is a matter of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. Okay, so um, what's being described here is uh, in a very kind of poignant way, um, is actually in some ways clinically useful for us to take seriously, you know, um, take you through that. Um, so, Being seen and not being invisible is a very important um, part of growing up and becoming a person with a sense of self, with a healthy sense of self. Um, and um, this is something that occurs throughout childhood where the child is looking for ways that they are being reflected, right? There's like, they're, they're looking for reflections of themselves in society. The way that they think of themselves, they wanna see what others think of them. And this is kind of a process that they're constantly doing. And it's very important for uh, development. And you have Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. And he, he talks about a number of different stages um, throughout, the, throughout the lifespan, the child is coming to terms with society in a specific way. There's like this interaction with the social surround and certain problems are being worked out. So in um, in early childhood, there's a question on the child's mind, which is, um, is, it, is it okay to be me? Okay, and if the response from the environment is yes, then they develop autonomy, they develop self-confidence and self-esteem. And if the answer is no, and it's a subtle kind of messaging from caregivers and from the culture, then what develops is a sense of shame and self-doubt, okay? In preschool, the child is carrying this question of, um, oh, okay. In preschool, the, the child is carrying the question of, uh, where am I get to in life? Like, what does the future hold for me? Like, is it, am I going to be able to contribute something? And if they get responses that are encouraging, if they receive recognition for their achievements, then that helps them become industrious. They helps them be hardworking. And if the answer is no, and they get a lot of negative feedback and they're discouraged, they develop a sense of inferiority. Okay. In adolescence, when the child or the adolescent is trying to explore who they are. If that gets um, shut down or they're asked to conform to certain views of themselves and of how, how things are like, then that can result in identity confusion. They're going to be kind of uncertain about who they are. Okay. So Erickson is talking about this, like this kind of dynamic interplay between the individual and the surround and how there's a negotiation that happens um, that is very vital for the person's like self-esteem and their sense of self and who they are. Jessica, do you have your hand raised? Uh, feel, feel free to just unmute and talk, okay? No, you don't have to raise your hands. Um, okay. I don't think they can see your screen. Really? Yeah. 
I think you have the resume share. Oh, I so it's just, I think they're seeing oh. your email. Oh, yeah, we're yeah. seeing your inbox. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Okay. Uh, now go back to your slide. Make sure. Okay. Make sure. Make sure it's on. Yeah, yeah. You might have to stop sharing. Maybe maybe stop sharing and reshare because I think you're you're sharing that window. Oh, so now they can see my conversation with Dunkley. Yeah, yeah. So you need to stop. You need to stop sharing. I think, and then you need to do a new share. Is that right? Okay. Stop share. And then share the screen again. Now we share the screen. Yeah. The green one. The green one in the yeah. Uh, and then yeah, do your PowerPoint. Uh, I need to go to the PowerPoint. That's it. Uh, is this okay? Yeah. So now we're yeah. good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um sorry to leave the Zoom people hanging on that one. Um okay, so so another person that we spoke about in our psychodynamic lectures on Tuesdays was Kohat. Did you all talk about him with Batsman? Yeah, in the beginning, it's been really amazing. In the very beginning, yeah. Gosh, gosh. He's familiar. Yeah, so probably, yeah, probably in the beginning. Um, he's he's the guy who talks about self-psychology and, and for him, the most important task for a person throughout life is developing self-coherence, like a, a self that is coherent. And for Kohak, the environment that the child grows up in is very important to achieve this, to like to actually um, get a sense of self that's coherent, right? And the way that that happens is through like, um, um, through, through uh, like validation in some ways, right? Through being recognized as a, as a valuable human being, right? So if that's happening in the child's environment, in the child's early environment, and they're getting the sense of connection, they're getting the sense that they're valuable, then they can grow up to be uh, have a cohesive sense of self. Okay? And um, he was really emphatic that the environment has to reflect back to the child their sense of themselves. And that way is, that, that's how they can start to feel more real and more seen and um that's that's kind of just you know they, they get the acceptance and love that that they need in order to exist as a sense of as a point of a sense of self okay so so okay so what, what i'm what i'm trying to say here is is like if if you grow up like in the forest with nobody around you to reflect back who you are to you you're not going to be aware of yourself in a, in a, in a way that um, you are, you know, otherwise, you know, when, when there are people like basically in order for you to come to an awareness of yourself, you need to know how other people are aware of you. OK, so there's something very natural about the child looking for themselves in other people's minds. So in order for them to get an understanding of who they are, um, they look at how you understand them. Thanks right. for saying the bar a little for parenting. I just need to be better than the forest. Yeah. <laughs> just, just recognize your kids. You know, you know, exist, and and you'll be okay. Um, so, so, but, uh, but no, like on that point, like 
I, ideally, like you want to provide enough attunement and enough, you want to see your child for who they are. So like the child does something or feels something or has a desire and they're, they're, they don't know what it is until you as their parents kind of verbalize it and reflect it back to them and kind of tell them what's on their mind. So they start to understand themselves through their interaction with you, right? And then oftentimes there are parents who, um, for whatever reason, they can't really see their kid for, for who their kid is. Like they they have a lot going on and they're constantly maybe projecting certain ideas about who they think um, the kid should be or or kind of misinterpreting things. And that can be really bad for, for a kid. So I'll give you like a funny example of something that happened with me when I was like a, when I was in, um, when I was in the seventh grade, and it's kind of like a nice example of how this thing can, can go wrong, right? It's kind of a benign example. I was um, I was in the second grade, and in I, you know, I grew up in Jordan. I'm Palestinian, but I grew up in Jordan. And we have like this system between friends, like kids, where if you want to be friends with, with another kid, you just go, you go like this. You give them a thumbs up. And this means, this means I'm friends with you, like literally, like very concrete. But something bad happens. Like whatever, like they betrayed you, or you don't you don't want to be their friends anymore. You give them the pinky, you go like this. This means like I'm not friends with you anymore. This is this is like this is like a language system, you know. Is that like offensive? It's no? not. It's That's just very. It's, yeah, it's just this is like you know I'm not friends with you, and this is friends with you, okay? And I have this friend. I have this guy. His name is Najati, and I I don't know what he did, but he like he messed with me or something. And I was like, I know what, like I don't like this Najati guy. And I stood up like I was in the second grade. I stood up in class, and I don't know, like I just remember this. I remember this memory because I was like very young, and um, there was something about that setting where I was like, I want to, I want to like give him the pinky. Like I was like, <laughs> I, this guy is no longer my friend. But I stood up and it was a little bit dramatic and I can see like the teacher was looking at me and I was like, maybe I shouldn't go all the way. Maybe there's something to preserve here. I'll just go halfway. Like, I'll, so I gave him the middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like, this is between kind of, between <laughs> ethnic and It's like, I'm like halfway, halfway in, halfway out. Like, I'm not sure about you right now. That's what I was trying to say to him, right? Like, like that's what I'm trying to make a sophisticated comment about the kind of relationship to how we step. So I'm giving him a middle finger as a seventh grader, this class in front of this teacher, and she freaks the hell out. Like I remember her reaction, like she freaked the hell out. And there was like no containing it. She was like, What's wrong? Like, what is this? What's wrong with you? And I was like, What? Like <laughs> some half friends, half not friends. And she was like, and her reaction was like so overblown. I was like so confused. Right. <laughs> And like I left that interaction kind of feeling like this kind of vague sense of badness, right? There's like there's something wrong with my spontaneity, right? So that's that's like that's something interesting happened there. Um, and I'm I'm reading this this book called called Black Boy by Richard Wright, and he talks about like this interesting situation where like a young kid who's a bit of a troublemaker, his grandma is kind of like this very orthodox kind of very Christian kind of rigid lady. She's like She's like washing him. And while she's washing him, and he makes kind of like this dirty comment, right? And he doesn't know what he's he doesn't know what he's saying. He's just a kid. But the grandma's reaction is like so overblown and she kind of beats him. And it's like horrible. And and what happens to him is like he um he just he has like this sense that there's something um there's like a like a nameless wrong 
he's like filled with like this unatonable guilt and it comes up in his life in different times it kind of becomes like this this, this kind of um it, it becomes a threat to be like yourself in a spontaneous way right so like these these are kind of interesting examples of where mentalization right or when the kid wasn't seen for who they are right and then that has bad effects for me i'm good like that was like a nice funny example right but i'm the thing about this that's kind of happening chronically at a very um important way with like your parents right you're, you, what happens is that you essentially you stop becoming spontaneous, right? That becomes a threat. Yeah. Um, what what age are we? Are you talking about? So uh, we're going to get more into that. There are different theories and different people. This this is um, you can think of it as happening honestly, like throughout adolescence. You know, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you're saying like the example is like you're projecting. A thought or an opinion or whatever, but the reaction you're getting from others is like they're misunderstanding you. The 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 you see yourself in a particular way. What what uh, the way that other people see you is very different. Okay, and, and you can tell this just by their like, and that's jarring. Right, and you can tell that by what they say to you, by how they think about you, uh -huh. because as a child you're always looking around. Yeah. Like who am I? The way they're treating you. The way you're, the way they're treating you, and this happens also like at a wider cultural level, like socially. Like right? this is not just mom and dad. This is watching the TV, seeing how people that look like you, how they're talked about, how what roles they play, right? It's like a wider thing. The stories, right? We have stories about uh, cowboys and Indians, and somehow like you know, the you know the the good guys are are the cowboys, and we gotta kind of identify with the with the cowboys, even though you might be native or something, right? So like there are these very kind of wider mirroring that happens at a social level and, and it's it affects the way that you see yourself it affects the, the self that you develop okay uh, there is this one interesting study that gets cited in, in brown versus board of education which is like 1954 court case for kind of segregated um, education uh, and it's a famous study that gets cited it's about um, the uh, the, the children's preferences for their dolls, and even black children preferred lighter-skinned dolls, right? And this was cited as like an example of how like horrible kind of racism is and, and how uh, ultimately like you're going to make an identification, you're going to make a choice of, you know, of what's what's being, what, what, what being good is like, right? And we're kind of negotiating your place in society, and this can conflict with, with who you are. Right? And that creates creates a huge problem for you. Uh, that's that's an example of internalized racism too, right? Like um, you get split against yourself. The, the images that are presented that are supposed to be you are so at odds with who you are. If you identify with them, you end up kind of internalizing something racist about yourself. Okay. Well, sorry. Is this what particular theory was this right from? Which one? Was it the, the, there? False self. The false self. Yes. So so Donald yeah. Winnicott, well, I think I think you all um should also be reading about in, in your Tuesday lectures. There's this article called False Self. And he's talking about this exact issue, but he's more interested in early infancy. Okay, early, early infancy. Um there is 
basically a, a baby, an infant who has um, kind of like these spontaneous desires and gestures, like they want food, like they cry or whatever. And if mom is a good enough mother in what it calls terms, um, yeah, the, uh, the caregiver would be able to respond in a kind of, in a fairly spontaneous way. And, um, and if this happens kind of seamlessly and nicely and smoothly, the infant starts to experience their desires and their needs and their gestures as being real, important, and meaningful. Okay? And if for whatever reason, uh, there isn't a good enough environment for the, for the infant, what happens is um, the child might, might start to face demands from the external world. Um, and they're, so they're not just concerned with themselves and what's coming up for them. They have to kind of um, content with things that are happening in their, in their reality, in their world. And that gets in the way of them developing like a subjectivity, of them developing like who they are as a person. So another way to think about this is the child should be able to develop like a sense of me because they have all of these kind of spontaneous desires that are being kind of fulfilled and... But, but if that's not happening and they have, to, they have to contend with the external environment for whatever reason, then they start to become aware of their expectations and their external stimuli. So instead of me, it becomes mother's son, right? And so what happens there is they, they become oriented towards others' expectations and the external environment. They're, they're, no, they're no longer at the center of their subjective experience. It's like they're always looking at themselves and the world through somebody else's eyes, okay? So this gets in the way of, of them being able to, to live authentically. They're, whatever they're doing, they're kind of doing it um, based on um, maybe what they think some, somebody, they what they should be doing, right? And that's, that's like the false self. There's, there's like a facade that comes up and it's keeping you from being authentic, and it's rooted at a very early level for Winnicott, where um, your own spontaneous and kind of inner, inner kind of needs and desires are not being attended to. They're getting frustrated, right? So that's that's something um, that's something that can stay with you. Okay. Others have elaborated on this idea. This is Bernard Brandshaft. He's, a, he's an intersubjective psychoanalyst, also a pathological accommodation. And what, what he's describing in this is um, not necessarily in early infancy. This is more broad, and this can happen later in the, in the person's life. Let's say mom is uh, mom or dad or the caregiver. They're depressed or whatever. Something is going on. They're... They need, they, they need something from the kid or they're not really available to them, right? And, and we know like attachment is, is a very important. It's like a hardwired drive in the, in the children. Attachment needs to happen, okay? It has to happen somehow because it's linked to a survival. So if, if the, let's say the parent is depressed and the child is kind of put in this situation where in order for them to be attached to the parent, then they have to kind of fulfill some, some kind of need, 
for the parent, maybe to be charming, right? Maybe to try to help, right? So what happens there is that attachment becomes contingent on, a, on an accommodation. In order, for, in order for you to be attached, to be in a, in a loving relationship with somebody that you depend on and you care about, you have to give up something about your psychological distinctness, right? You, so now you're kind of attuned to your caregiver's psychology, their state, what's going on with them, and you're trying to orient yourself so that you can accommodate them, support them, help them, be something for them, right? So you're existing for them. In a way, this is happening at the expense of you, right? This is happening at the expense of your own personal growth, your own authenticity, your self-differentiation, okay? And this is a this is something that you can carry on in your life. Um, it's something that you learn unconsciously. You did it to survive. You didn't do it because you wanted to. So it becomes kind of like a procedural memory. You know, you have, you have, you have declarative memory, which is more kind of... Um, general knowledge about the world, like maybe autobiographical stuff is stored in the hippocampus, and then you have procedural memory, right, which is unconscious. You, you don't really retrieve it, and, it, and it's in a different region. It's in the basal ganglia. So this is happening at that level. The way that your pattern of response to the environment is more of the procedural memory, and it's um, kind of very deep and unconscious, okay? And it, you take that with you in your entire life, right? So this happens when you're young, but you might start to end up being in relationships where um, you can't, you don't feel like you can say what's on your mind, right? Or you don't feel like there's like this problem. You can't really be authentic. And it's, and it's uh, and it has big implications for like your sense of vitality, your sense of meaning, and it can really be damaging to a person, okay? And if we, and it also results in like some self-defeating patterns too, because again, you're, in, in very severe cases, you're not at the center of your subjective experience. So like I'm sitting here, I can feel this chair against my body and I'm in this body and I'm thinking these things, right? I'm at the center of my subjective experience. For some people, they'll be way more attuned and paying so much more attention to what's going on with other people all the time. So they're almost like their work, they're literally like their second by second actions are kind of but while looking through another person's eyes at themselves. So think about like that level of kind of false self, right? That's like a very deep alienation from yourself. Okay. And again, this idea is an old idea. Think back to 1933 with a paper called Confusion of Tongues. This is Sandor Ferenzi, and he talked about something called identification with the aggressor. And it's kind of Kind of the same thing that we're talking about. This is kind of like the pathological accommodation, the false self stuff. And he says this, he says the, the undeveloped personality reacts to sudden unpleasure, not by defense, but by anxiety-ridden identification and by interjection of the menacing person or aggressor. Through the identification, or let us say interjection of the aggressor, the aggressor disappears as part of external reality and becomes intrapsychic, sort of extrapsychic. okay? So there is a traumatizing person, a trauma, traumatogenic object, and the victimized internalizes this person in their mind. So it becomes like whatever the aggressor wants, the victim, want, victim also wants and curtails. Um, 
So again, what you get here is like this splitting of the ego. So the, the victim becomes both victim and aggressor. So kind of complicated stuff. Let me give you a benign example of how this happens. Also something um, happened to me, like very, very benign, simple thing, but th this is a huge, huge devastating topic. Um, but just to illustrate, illustrate it simplistically. So I was, I was at the dentist, right? And I'm extracting my wisdom teeth and you know, they, 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 um, they put the anesthetic and I was like mumbling my words and like, I couldn't feel anything and sat down and the doctor was like this nice Southern doctor and, and, uh, you know, took out this, I don't know, what is it like a forcep? I don't even know. It was like this very savage procedure. I wasn't like, honestly, I wasn't ready for it. So he puts it, puts it in my mouth, right? And he starts to like yank it. It's like, and I'm like sitting there. I'm like, I'm like, I have to do this, right? Like, I'm, but I kind of got this kind of really uh, shitty feeling, like this powerlessness, this helplessness, and like this kind of really. So what I did there, like, just because it just didn't feel good to be sitting there. I kind of started to imagine, like, you know, like, yeah, like get that tooth out of there. Like, I got, like I did that in my mind. So I was like, kind of like identifying with this dentist who was making me feel helpless and uncomfortable. I was like, no, we're both here to get this, you know, tooth out, and I don't need this tooth. But it was driven by this kind of anxiety ridden kind of sense of helplessness, right? And you can kind of see yourself doing that in certain instances where like it's, just, it's very intolerable to be in this situation where you're powerless and you feel like you can't really protest, right? So what you do is you take on and you identify with the aggressor, right? My This is a very simple example. I'm good. I removed the wisdom teeth. I'm like, I'm, I'm cool with that doctor. But like, that's like a simple, simple kind of outline of a, of a psychological process that happens, okay? And if you and if you can imagine that happening all the time, right? Then that's kind of like a, a split within yourself against yourself. Okay. That's a little bit like what what starts to develop with a person like with sexual um, trauma who then goes on to uh, like mm -hmm. perform sexual trauma. Or mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. I think I think I guess. Sorry. Yeah, I know. I didn't use enough words. Um, yeah. So if uh, an individual experiences a certain like sexual trauma, yeah. and then the higher there is a likelihood that they will go on to perpetrate um, sexual trauma, it's mm -hmm. kind of like sure. It's a, it's a reaction to trauma. It's a reaction to an aggressor, and, and people can react to it um, mm -hmm. in many different ways. And I can imagine, yeah, sexual trauma. Yeah, I was thinking like mm -hmm. similar, but. Like those who go on to, you know, prostitute themselves or um, be, or I guess, find themselves engaged in relationships that allow their partner to take advantage of them sexually, um, mm -hmm. almost sort of tricking themselves into thinking, I want this, That's like this, right, or pornography, yeah. right, all those kind of things. Yeah. Right. Um, and a lot of people say that Freud didn't think about like social stuff, but there's like some very um, consistent and illuminating writings about the dynamics between oppressor and oppressed and how this identification with the aggressor um, kind of takes root in certain ways, right? So, um, 
you know, society reflects the desires of a wealthy few who acquire control over the distribution of wealth, right? Um, so there's there's a lot of wealth that's controlled by by not by not a lot of people. Right? I think there are some statistics in the U.S. It's like a crazy number. Um, it's like what is it? I don't even know. I think it's um, like, it's two, like about two thirds of the wealth generated since 2020 is owned by like. Yeah, the top 10%, but then 1%. 1%, 1% is a third, and then the, the other, yeah, there. Right. Crazy, yeah, yeah. One third has, has as much as the top three people, I think. It's like that. It's like really, it's like really insane. Whatever, but yeah. you get the point. The point yeah. is, um, like the vast wealth is, is held by like a, by a minority. And people have kind of always asked, like, what's going on? Like, why is it that the people who don't have much, why don't they, like, rebel and try to get it? Um, and the reason why is because they start to see, like, their, in, the, in their oppressors, they start to see their ideals, right? It's kind of like the, temp the temporary embarrassed millionaire. You know that myth? That one, um, and then, and then um, historically, too, like, race was used as, like, a very powerful tool for this purpose. When there was um, 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 basically to to quell kind of solidarity between working class and, and enslaved uh, people of color, the white working class was told, you know, even though you're oppressed, you're still white, right? And so, like, they have this illusion that one day, if they work hard enough, or whatever, they can become like their the white um, landowners. Right, so that that was kind of like an identification of the aggressor, where um, conditions were actually created in order to get that to happen, and the and the white working class would displace their envy and their hatred onto the excluded third of like people of color, you know, women, and they become kind of the source of their problems, as opposed to their oppressors who they kind of see who they could look up to, right. So that's like an interesting example of the way that it plays out. And um, it, there's a lot of interesting writing on it psychologically. I'm getting this from Daniel Gestenbide's book, which I recommended to you all at the beginning of the year, People's History of Psychoanalysis. Um, really good stuff. Um, okay, and so, so what you're getting here is that there, there's like the system of inequality that gets internalized. And that, that's how the status quo school gets maintained, okay? Some of the ideas that we're talking about today are, you know, they predate psychoanalysis. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about double consciousness in like 1903, way before any psychoanalyst talked about it. And he describes it like this. I'm just going to read this quote here. Uh, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contemplation. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's 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 an oppressor within, right? There are warring ideals, and this has been written about um, a lot more by um, different decolonial psychoanalysts. Franz Fanon is a Martinican psychiatrist, and he has a he has a, he has a book called Black Skin White Masks, and he talks a lot about the way that um, for colonized people and people in, in Africa in particular who he was concerned about, there was this desire to, to become white, right? 
there is this desire to like turn white or disappear. And he talks about the way that societies have a way of managing their aggression, like there's a collective catharsis. And um, as, as kids who like read stories about, uh, about just different, different stories about, like we're saying, like cowboys and Indians or uh, and like even even for me in, in Jordan, like just playing games where you're like the U.S. and you're kind of invading uh, Iraq. All of these things, like as a kid, you want to identify with the good with the good guys, right? And so what what happens there is you start to identify with um, your oppressor, right? Basically, the idea is that if the world is is cruel to you, you start being cruel to you as well. Um, and, and yeah, so 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 you're getting this sense that um, there are many different ways that a person can get split against themselves. They can um, inauthentic, inauthenticity in some ways gets pressured. Um, in some cases, it's like almost um, impossible to to you know for your own safety. And um, you know, there's a this the social and cultural context is very important for this, right? A lot of psychoanalysts thought mostly about the environment, like the nuclear family, but this happens at a wider social level. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You just heard a lecture by Dr. Abdel Aziz Abawab. For more, please visit his YouTube page, which is linked to at renderingunconscious.org, where you can view this lecture as well as other lectures that he's done. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for contributing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com, and follow him at social media, carl.abrahamson at Instagram, and carlabrahamson at TikTok. And now the song, Butterfly Effect, from my latest album with Pete Murphy, All Poets Are Pornographers, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Things happen. Butterfly effect. It surprises me how swiftly the effects are, and to what exactitude the scene repeats itself, like a mirroring across a translucent hips don't lie. La cucara repeats itself. Boundary of time repeats itself. This needs to be examined further, permeated by the chemistry, permeated by the curiosity of a child. Pinnacle of sadness, no complete sentences. What humble, deep of, yes, darkness. Immediately, then, now, anguish and an anger, you did the dark cloud that. 
because I am. There is no fail.